Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our Big Island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha. Welcome to a bonus podcast of Island Conversations. Normally, if you're on the big island of Hawaii, you may listen to Island Conversations on Sunday mornings at 6.30 a.m. on KWXX and at 7 a.m. on B97B93 and on the following Friday on KPUA 670 a.m. in Hilo. But this particular topic could not wait. A big question right now is how the state moves forward. How do we flatten that COVID-19 curve? And how do we get to a point where we can begin to get our economy back, whatever it may look like after this shutdown? The University of Hawaii Public Policy Center brought together a team of interdisciplinary researchers who have released a report called Crush the Curve that is super easy to understand that addresses what they say are urgent steps Hawaii should take to fully control the novel coronavirus pandemic and to set the stage for restarting the economy. The three authors include Colin Moore, who's the director of the Public Policy Center and a political science professor whom many of you have seen talking about candidates and issues on TV. Dr. Seiji Yamada, who is a professor at the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the Johnny Byrne School of Medicine, and the lead author, Dr. Robert Perkinson, who is with us today. Dr. Perkinson helps coordinate the UH Better Tomorrow series, some world-renowned speakers who come to speak at UH, and he is a professor of history at UH. Good morning, aloha, Dr. Perkinson. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am so glad you're here. And just to give people a little background, I believe you got your bachelor's in history from the University of Colorado at Boulder, your PhD in American Studies from Yale University, and you work in the areas of social and political history, crime and punishment, race and politics, U.S. world history, and social movements. You're a published author, and I can see from reading that you're well-respected in your field. So I'm so happy you're here. Tell me how a history professor gets involved in a study like this. Well, I do a lot of research in criminal justice, so I initially started evaluating the state's response and thinking of recommendations to make in terms of reducing the inmate population, because, of course, any kind of congregate housing can be extremely dangerous in this pandemic. But the more I started talking to people and looking at the issues, I realized, really, I needed to think in broader terms about needing a more robust response for the state in general across the board. So we pulled together a lot of faculty from all over, talked to them, and really there's very wide agreement in what the necessary steps are to contain the outbreak and to reopen the economy. Now that's interesting because wide agreement is very important and not always easy to achieve. So you said you pulled together a lot of different people. Tell us a little bit about the method that you used in this, please. Well, I run the Better Tomorrow Speaker Series at UH, and so we are hosting some interviews with UH faculty and community experts on all aspects of the pandemic, educational, so the public can dig in a little bit deeper to some of the issues. But in the process, we were talking to virologists and epidemiologists and public health officials and economists and political scientists, and really there is remarkable consensus that the very well-tested public health playbook 
is the one that we need to follow, and there are four steps to what you need to drive this epidemic back, and so far we've really only accomplished one, one and a half of them, and if we're going to be safe and well-positioned for recovery, we have to take all four. Okay, well, so let's hear what Hawaii is doing right. You said we've accomplished one and a half of them. <laughs> what, what's the one and a half? Well, Hawaii has some advantages in confronting this pandemic compared to other parts of the world and the United States. Principally, we're an island. And so when the governor restricted travel from outside of Hawaii, requiring everyone who comes in to self-quarantine for two weeks, you know, even if the enforcement has been somewhat spotty, that still has led to a dramatic fall in air arrivals and cruise ship arrivals to Hawaii. And that, combined with a dose of luck, has meant that we have not had the exponential expansion of cases that other places have seen. Hawaii residents, too, all of us, have really stepped up to meet this challenge. And with a few exceptions, almost all of us are at home, avoiding gatherings, being very careful, wearing masks. And so both state government, city governments, and the rest of us have taken the first step pretty well to contain this. Now we just need to dramatically increase testing, really enhance our investigative capacity to shut down each chain of contagion, and to take advantage of the other big asset we have, which is hotel space. In your report, which, like I said, is extremely easy to read, you have three specific recommendations beyond social distancing, which you've talked about. Although, you wait, let's go back. You did say in the report we do need to do a better job in social distancing. So what else do you think we need to do there? I would say two things. You know, one is we probably could do a better job of launching a major public education effort with a specific focus on the cultural groups in Hawaii that may not be being reached through other channels. You know, make sure that we have educational materials being broadcast in all of the languages we have represented in Hawaii. Make sure that we have distinct outreach efforts for the communities most at risk. That's one option. The other one is enforcement. And of course, the the counties principally have been experimenting with ways to convince or compel the public to stay home and stay apart from each other. We want to aim, I think, for enforcement that is visible so that it communicates the seriousness of the and the stakes of this illness to the public, but that's also restrained and logical and judicious. So I don't think in order to decrease the number of people in public, we need to be arresting and fining lots of people. We need to be focusing on congregate work sites that are non-essential and, you know, outdoor activities that are clearly unsafe. One thing that I think is really important is because we all need to hang together all the way through this outbreak, we want to make sure that the public and the trust the officials and the response they are coordinating. So that behooves those in government and on the enforcement side to try to build trust with the public, even as we try to get people to stay home. That sort of goes to what you spoke about, groups that may not be paying attention to, you know, I read the news a lot. You do, obviously. There's a lot of people who do, but a lot of people who don't. Even though the most at-risk group is those people, they say, 60 or 65 and above. In our state, the biggest number of cases is in those 40 to 59, and the second biggest number is in those 20 to 39. And some of those may be groups who are not thinking 
this applies to them. So you're right, the education piece is really, really critical. Yeah, and we need to reach everybody from people living in a homeless encampment along the Alawai Canal to people living up on Hawaii Ridge. Okay, in the report, you have three very specific recommendations, and they seem to be simple. I'll boil it down, more testing, tracing the contacts of people who've been exposed, and for those who are exposed or for other specific groups, quarantine them. And you mentioned, and we'll get to this, hotel rooms. And this doesn't seem very different from some of the things that are in the general White House guidelines. But why don't you take us through what you see Hawaii needs, starting with testing, because that is a huge hot button, the lack of as much testing as people feel like we need. So talk about that. Sure. Hawaii, after a lag, like everywhere in the United States, has picked up the pace of testing pretty dramatically, thanks largely to a private effort. And we now have a pretty good rate of per capita testing going on. But we also need to have a target of a much larger number of tests taking place on a regular basis. Harvard researchers came out with modeling yesterday that suggested we need at least three times as much testing every day in Hawaii as we have now. That might not be possible for the state on its own to accomplish right away because of supply chain problems and laboratory capacity. But we need to make sure that at the very top of government, we have a clear priority to identify any bottlenecks to testing and to get through those bottlenecks as fast as we can. Because we need testing not only of extremely symptomatic individuals, but of lightly symptomatic individuals, people who lose their sense of taste or have a mild cold. They can infect their family members or their colleagues at work just as easily as someone can who's more sick. We also need to make sure that we're doing surveillance testing, especially among our populations that are most at risk, nursing home residents, long-term care facility residents, prisoners, and all sorts of frontline employees, hospital workers, obviously, first responders. But that also includes, as we've learned from the Big Island Cluster at the McDonald's, restaurant workers, grocery store employees, you know, everyone who's working and is conducting vital service to keep all of us safe and all of us fed needs to have the capacity to be tested on a surveillance basis and on a diagnostic basis. I don't know if this is part of your report, but... Nationally, the White House is saying, oh, there's labs that aren't even busy. Do you think that we have more capacity for testing here in the state? Or is that something the state is going to have to literally go after the White House or whoever to get more testing capability here in the state? And I guess it's down to more physical tests. I'm not deep enough in the weeds of the people working at HIEMA and the Department of Health to know how much more capacity we have today that we're not using. But I am quite confident that we could bring more capacity online in a week or two weeks or a month if we devote the resources and the personnel and the urgency to make sure that it's a top emergency priority of state government. That's good, because particularly what you said about people without symptoms, I have been hearing that in some places where they're able to do a little more aggressive testing, they're finding a really large percentage, like up to 50% in some cases of people who have no symptoms, but are positive for COVID-19. And clearly, as you point out, if I have no symptoms, and I think I'm good to go to work, I can spread it. And one of the things that uh, Dr. Yamada, one of our co-authors pointed out is that one sign that your testing regime is working is if your percent positive goes down. And you really don't 
have a sense that you're testing enough until you get to a positive rate of 1% or 2%. That means you're testing enough to catch cases that you might not have caught otherwise, and we're nowhere near there yet. So Hawaii needs to really very urgently at least triple the numbers of testing that it's conducting every day. So far, we have not, thank God, had a cluster of cases among the homeless or in a prison or, worse yet, in a nursing home facility. But it's very difficult to avoid a cluster like that that can be absolutely catastrophic for the residents of those facilities unless we have a lot more testing capacity and a lot more testing going on every day than is happening right now. So let's talk about contact tracing or finding out who the infected person has been close to. How does that work? Yeah, so, you know, all over the world, I guess we are all learning about the basic practices of public health one step at a time. So we all learned about social distancing, and then we've been reading a lot about testing. And the next step is contact tracing, which means investigating everyone who tests positive, finding out mostly by talking to them and jarring their memory and gaining their trust, reaching out to all of their close and prolonged contacts, in some cases asking for their cooperation and using their cell phone for social media data and location data, and tracking down all of those contacts and making sure that they are notified, tested, and also that they more intensively isolate themselves through the incubation period should they come down with the illness. That's a very labor-intensive process. It may be a year from now when Google and Apple have apps built into their operating systems that there will be faster ways to do it. But in the meantime, we need to raise literally an army. The CDC recommends that the United States as a whole will need to hire at least 300,000 people to be involved in contact tracing. That means Hawaii will need to hire and deploy something like a 1,000 or more new state workers, either by deploying the National Guard or by reassigning state workers. But most assuredly, that's going to involve new hires as well. That's, of course, going to be expensive. That's going to be scary for some politicians to do when revenues are collapsing, which is something we can talk about a little bit later. But it's absolutely imperative. We cannot get ahead of this. And we can't reopen the economy unless we have the capacity to trace down every infection, even if infections surge, and isolate everyone, investigate it, and shut down the chain of transmission. And a brief interruption to let you know that this is Island Conversations, and I'm Sherry Bracken. Today we're talking with Dr. Robert Perkinson. He's the lead researcher on a report put out in mid-April by the University of Hawaii's Public Policy Institute. He's the lead researcher. The other authors are Seiji Yamada, MD, MPH, and Colin Moore, PhD, who is the director of the Public Policy Center. Before we talk more with Dr. Perkinson about what the state needs to do to quickly address the COVID-19 pandemic so we can move away from it and get our economy back, let's hear from our sponsor, KTA Superstores, one of the many fine stores on the Big Island of Hawaii, which remains open to help us get our essential needs. 
At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. I heard Dr. Bruce Anderson in one of the media briefings say that he believed that on average an infected person may have as many as 30 to 36 contacts. So if I get it, I may have talked somehow or been in contact over the past week when I was actually contagious with 30 or 36 people. That clearly takes a lot of folks. Right now, we have county workers, and I just talked to a county council member today to confirm this. We also have state workers who are on paid leave. They are not able to go to their jobs because their jobs are very public. And they'd be willing to do this kind of work, which as I understand it, really requires telephone skills. And there may be people in other industries, hotels who are not working. Is there any reason we couldn't deploy those people right now? No reason at all. Of course, everyone involved in this effort will need training and supervision and mentoring and education about legal and medical privacy concerns. But, you know, that training can be done and it can be done relatively quickly. And so we could begin increasing that workforce immediately. I think that helps us get through the short term. But it's also clear that we need to be ready for this pandemic and for it to go on for a while until there's a vaccine and also for future pandemics. And we have, as a country, not built up the public health infrastructure that we need nationally and locally. And we will need, I believe, a Department of Health permanently that's much larger than it is now, because just like you need, say, the military to be ready for national security crises, you need public health capacity in excess of what you need on any given day to be ready for crises when they come. Because that's when you really need your health department, right? That's exactly right. And we should think of it, I believe, like people in the United States have become accustomed to thinking of the military. For the most part, many people accept that we have a large standing army, even if there's not a massive war going on. Because the idea is you're ready for conflict. And those people train and they do missions, but they're not necessarily always fighting. The same has to be true of public health. We need much more capacity on a permanent basis than we have now. And but what you really need, I think, to hire hundreds of people to be capable of meeting just this epidemic in contact tracing. You mentioned Apple and Google, and I was disappointed to hear you say it might be a year before what they're doing comes to fruition. But I know that in other countries, they are using cell phone data. And I heard Apple and Google folks talking about what they're doing, which is creating an app that the state public health departments could implement that would allow me, if I'm positive, I'd have an app on my phone and other people around me, if they had the same app, would then be flagged, if I turned out to be positive, they would get a message that said, hey, you were near somebody who was positive, call your doctor. This would be voluntary, it wouldn't share personal data. And it sounds like a real good solution. Because in even looking at the McDonald's cluster in Kona, which now, as we speak, is up to 30 that they've acknowledged, there may be more just from people being close to other people. For sure. And I think there will be long-term technological solutions. And other countries, South Korea, Singapore, 
China, too, in a more authoritarian way, have deployed technology pretty effectively to both quarantine and contact trace. And there may be some of this technology that can roll out soon. It could be there are apps that are already being used that you can already download and install on your phone. And it could be that public officials could encourage everyone in Hawaii to select one of these apps because you need a critical mass of people to opt in in order for it to be effective. But in order for Apple at Google to get this built into operating system, educate the public so that they can opt in, and then coordinate with all 50-plus departments of health all around the United States that they have the capacity to share data with them and integrate them into their systems, I suspect that's going to be complicated and much more time delayed than hiring people immediately to do the sort of contact tracing that departments of health know how to do and that they're doing now, but that they're just not staffed sufficiently to complete. The next major part of your report talks about isolation and quarantine. Talk about that, please. Well, I would say, besides geographic isolation, the second critical advantage that Hawaii has, which is, ironically, a kind of blessing in this crisis, is that we have thousands upon thousands of empty hotel rooms. We also have hundreds upon hundreds of -of out-of-work hotel workers, many of whom are in good health and with proper compensation and protections would be willing to work in those hotels. And there really are several populations that we need hotel space for. We need to isolate everyone who comes in or quarantine everyone who comes into the state even if they have a local residence, because it doesn't make sense for someone who's away at college to come home and go into their family until they've passed the two weeks of quarantine. So that's one group. Everyone who tests positive, unless they live alone, should have the option at government expense of staying in a hotel for the full incubation period or through the course of their illness, provided they're not so seriously ill that they need to be hospitalized. When we identify close and prolonged contacts of individuals who test positive, those people also should have the option of staying in a hotel. And first responders, which has gotten more attention, you know, paramedics, respiratory therapists, emergency room physicians and nurses, ICU doctors and nurses, people who are getting exposed even through their PPE to very large viral loads and are therefore at a much higher risk of infection and sometimes also at risk of a much more severe course of illness because of the loads they can become infected with, you know, those people are putting their lives on the line to protect us, and we owe it to them to help them not have to infect their families. All of that will take money, again, which we can discuss, but it is a much better investment to spend hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars on contact tracing, even tens of millions of dollars, on contact tracing and hotel expenditures in order to save billions of dollars if that will enable us to open our economy sooner. Well, one of the things that we have here in the state, certainly we have it here on this island, is a lot of people live in large multi-generational households. I just look at the McDonald's cluster as an example where multiple family members of the first person were immediately infected, you know, five or six or seven of them. And I don't know how many now of the 30 cases as we speak are those kind of family members, but a lot of people just can't isolate in their own home. They aren't blessed with having their own bedroom 
and their own bathroom and separated. So it sounds like that would be an immediate solution for some of the obvious problems we have here in the state. Yes, obviously. Um, you know, housing density is really high in Hawaii. Um, lots of people live in multi-generational households. Lots of households are big because we have a real emphasis on Ohana and because housing is expensive. Um, so it makes no sense for someone to test positive and then go back into their household and infect their grandparents. That's a really dangerous policy that we have in place now, and we have a very clear solution to avoid it. We're just not taking advantage. Well, we are using the Hotels for Heroes program, which means that there are a lot of healthcare workers or first responders that have been offered lodging at hotels, but my understanding is that program just got snapped up really quickly, and they're going to have to expand it because of just what you said. There's so many people who are on the front lines who are being exposed, and in fact, in a press conference when Bruce Anderson, Dr. Bruce Anderson of the Department of Health was talking about some of the first McDonald's victims, he mentioned that several firefighter EMTs, I believe he said four, although I can't be sure of that, it was at least three and maybe four, they were exposed and they had to be quarantined, isolated because of that exposure because they didn't realize they were dealing with somebody with COVID. Of course. So that Hotel for Heroes program is a great first step, but it's really quite modest in its present incarnation compared to where it needs to be. Um, we need not just to provide emergency room physicians or other health care workers the ability to stay in a hotel for a few nights while they're on their shifts or working overtime because they're exhausted. In many cases, we may need to provide at least the option of housing for really essential frontline workers for the duration of this crisis, if they so choose. You know, if we've got a respiratory therapist or an ICU doc who's incubating patients and they live with vulnerable parents at home, if they are willing to shelter in a hotel for quite some time while they complete their emergency work, we should certainly help them do so because um, we can't expect people to put their own lives at risk and to risk the lives of their families too while they try to help the rest of us. And we need to step up as taxpayers and help them help them do that. I realize that all of the study authors are on Oahu, and Oahu is a little bit different from some of the other islands, certainly different from the Big Island, in that you have a much more urban and much more dense population. So I'm wondering how your report can be incorporated into what individual counties do, or is this looking really at it from a State Department of Health and state government perspective? Or are there things individual counties can do that would be different or the same as what you're suggesting? We have mostly focused on the response of state government, but I think we actually have shown a pretty good level of cooperation among all of our island governments and the state government. Um, they coordinate pretty well, not that they agree about everything. And so there are no doubt ways for cities to help, especially with social distancing as they have, but also with public education, outreach, and contact tracing. I would say that rural areas have some advantages in this epidemic and that people may not congregate in as great of numbers in as many places and as frequently, but there are real challenges too. Distance, weaker hospital infrastructure, uh, larger distances for ambulance travel. So, you know, we need to make sure that the state and the counties have the personnel 
to be doing testing in rural areas, going not expecting those people to drive in to larger areas for testing, but make sure we take the testing and the outreach to them. We need to make sure that we provide safe and secure kind of transportation to hotels for isolation if those hotels don't exist in their local communities. So absolutely, this is a response that needs to be coordinated and designed to fit the demographic realities of Hawaii in all of its diversity. We need to make sure that we're reaching out to every group, um, which, you know, actually raises another question about testing, which is that thus far, you know, we've not been releasing the data about testing results with the detail that we ought to be releasing it. Tell me more about that. What more information would you want to see? Well, there are privacy and stigma concerns. So, you know, public officials quite rightly are worried about just announcing that so-and-so is positive and everybody should watch out for him. But thus far, we're erring on the side of caution and releasing very little information. And it's absolutely critical that we know not just the zip code, but more precise location information so that clusters can be identified. We need to know information about age, comorbidities, and also ethnicity. One of the findings that only became clear once public health officials started releasing more granular data on the continent is that African-Americans are suffering a much greater rate of infection and worse, much more probability of adverse outcomes than our other population groups. That's true among Native Americans, too. That may be the case among Hawaiians and Micronesians and other groups that, demographically speaking, have a similar profile of health concerns and comorbidities. Right now, we have no way of knowing, and that's really tragic. Native Hawaiians suffered absolutely cataclysmic rates of population decline all through the 19th century. Native Hawaiians suffered more than other groups in the 1918 influenza epidemic in Hawaii, and they are positioned, quite possibly, to suffer higher rates of infection and death in Hawaii. And right now we have no capacity to know that, and therefore no capacity to really try to protect them unless we share that information. And just a brief interruption before we get to the final third of our program. I'm Sherry Bracken. This is Island Conversations. We are talking with Dr. Robert Perkinson, who is the lead author on a report called Crush the Curve. He worked with Dr. Seiji Yamada and Dr. Colin Moore from University of Hawaii on preparing this report that addresses what the state of Hawaii has to do to get through this COVID-19 pandemic and be ready to reopen the economy. Island Conversation airs on the radio on the Big Island of Hawaii on Sundays on KWXX and on B97B93 and on the following Friday on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo. You may also hear Island Conversations as a podcast at kwxx.com or b97hawaii.com or wherever you get podcasts. Just look for Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. And of course, as always, a huge thank you to our sponsor, KTA Superstores, which has seven stores around Hawaii Island still open for your grocery and shopping and all your needs. Let's get back to Dr. Robert Perkinson. When you talk about the privacy issues, that really brings to mind that when the first cluster in Kona came up, there were a lot of questions as to, well, which restaurant? We weren't initially given the answers. You know, we were told, well, it's a privacy issue. And I was just trying to figure out in my own mind, HIPAA laws apply to individual people's privacy, my privacy. And I was puzzled as to why, at first, there was reluctance to release the information. 
Now the state has gone to saying McDonald's. At this point, all three McDonald's in Kailua Kona are closed. But that's the kind of thing I would think people would need to know. Like, gee, did I hang out with a worker from McDonald's? And does that mean I need to be concerned? So I think you're right. I'd like to see a little more openness when it's possible to be open. Yes, of course, we don't want to give government unlimited authority to arrest and fine and scold and isolate and quarantine and take their personal data. But on the other hand, we need common sense. This is an emergency, and we need to act like it's an emergency and not providing people the information they need to protect themselves and their families is not smart. No, and when you look at contact tracing, if I were to ask you, Dr. Perkinson, so for the last five to seven days, exactly who have you talked to for how long and where? I bet you couldn't do it. Well, actually, because I've been stuck in my house, it's fairly easy. <laughs> but but it would be difficult, right? And that's why contact tracing is labor-intensive, and you need to build the person's trust. Because we do have privacy laws in the U.S., we don't necessarily want the government kind of forcibly taking people's data against their will. But I believe most people would be willing to share their social media contacts and to share their past travel information so that we could identify the McDonald's or whatever other kind of location that they visited and when they visited it. Well, and everything you've been saying also, and you said this early on as we talked, education, education in all languages and reaching out to some of those communities that don't perhaps get news the way some of the others of us do. Right. And that's going to be maybe even more true in rural areas that we need to have kind of tailored outreach in social distancing, in enforcement, in communication, in education, contact tracing, and isolation. We have to think about everybody in Hawaii on every island and try to make sure that we make everybody safe. And the sooner we do this, you know, every month that the economy is shut down is costing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to the state in revenue. Unless we have all of these steps in place, we can't end this shutdown safely. So we have to take all these steps now. The Hawaii government has done pretty well compared to many others. But one of the most disappointing, to me, responses has been to kind of act in a very conventional way to a decline in state revenue. You know, we generally, and it's a good idea, we have the notion that expenditures ought to match revenues. But that's exactly the wrong approach in an emergency. It's been proven to be the wrong response in an emergency in every economic downturn since the Great Depression. Governments that undertook austerity and cuts were slower to respond, they prolonged the crisis, and they actually led to decreases in government revenue because they prevented the increase in economic activity. This is really a time when Hawaii state government needs to step up and spend. We need to be putting people in hotels for isolation. We need to be hiring people for contact tracing. We need to be putting every dollar we can into strengthening our healthcare system and into testing. All of that is going to cost a lot of money. We are very fortunate that we're living in a period of low interest rate, low inflation, and that the Federal Reserve is offering to buy state debt. There is no reason that the state budget in this year needs to be balanced. That is foolishness and will harm us all. Well, in addition to the state suffering from a loss of revenue, so many individuals are suffering from a complete loss of revenue. And that's another reason why government in crises needs to spend. 
many of us maybe have access to some credit on our credit cards or home equity loan or something, but the smaller the entity, the less capacity we have to respond with deficit spending, even though we'll do it in an emergency if we have to in order to survive. But the organizations that are most well-placed to take on debt is first the federal government, and the federal government is doing that despite all of the chaos and the infighting and the lack of coordination and denial at the top of the federal government. At the very least, the Fed and the federal government are pumping some money into the economy. And states need to do the same. We need to be putting people to work in the emergency response so that we are capable of recovering sooner. I am guessing that in your report, even though at the very end you do mention cost, that you haven't actually had any way to calculate actual cost. No, that's right. I mean, only in a very napkin um, sort of level. But it could cost millions of dollars, new dollars, to hire hundreds of people for contact tracing and to put dozens, or if there are a surge of cases, maybe hundreds of people in hotels for significant amounts of time because those properties should receive some revenue for that. And certainly the workers who then kind of become first responders themselves should receive good compensation and protection for that. But that would be money very well spent. I worry that some political leaders are worrying now about a shortfall in revenue down the road, so they're thinking about cuts. I think that's exactly the wrong attitude. When your house is on fire, you do not delay while you think about water damage and mold. You turn on the hoses and you put out the fire. Now, you may have water damage, And you may have mold, and those may be problems that you really have to deal with, but you deal with them later. We need to spend now. We need to respond to the emergency. We need to step up and treat this like a real threat to our communities, just like we would with some sort of national security emergency, and we need to get through it together. And if on the other side of that there are cuts or revenue enhancements that need to take place, as they probably will, well, then we'll have to work those things out. But we will be much better positioned to help the economy recover if we protect ourselves from a cataclysmic outbreak in Hawaii now. How would you respond to somebody who would say, well, in Hawaii, we haven't had that many cases. We haven't had that many deaths. You know, we've really done a good job of keeping it at bay. Well, and thank goodness for that. That is something we can all celebrate and be very thankful for because people in Hawaii have mostly complied with physical distancing And because we shut down travel, largely at least, from the continent and from other continents, um, we have not seen the kind of, yet, the exponential surge in cases that other places have seen. But the problem is, this is a virus, because of the asymptomatic transmission and because of the relatively long incubation period, that can spread in a population quite widely before you start seeing a surge of emergency room admissions. And this is a virus that over and over again in China, in Italy, in Spain, in New York, that severely punishes caution and delay. It may be that there will be politicians around the world in New Zealand or Iceland or Korea or Singapore where At the end of this crisis, people will go back and say, oh, you know, we didn't need that field hospital, or we didn't need to hire those extra 2,000 contact tracers. How wonderful would it be to be able to look back and think that we were slightly overprepared? That is a possibility, but we have seen over and over again 
all over the world what happens when a society meets a virus and they're underprepared. And it is tragic and disastrous. We want to be spending money on contact tracing, not on ventilators and refrigerator trucks for an overloaded morgue, not to be grim. That's grim, but realistic, given what we're seeing elsewhere. Now, Dr. Robert Perkinson, the University of Hawaii Center for Public Policy is very well respected. So what, at this point, has been the response from the State Department of Health and Governor David Ige? Well, we just released the response over the weekend, kind of in drafting a lot of the recommendations. We tried to reach out to people we knew, many of whom are UH faculty who've been detailed to the state's emergency response to make sure that there was generally agreement in the sorts of recommendations we were making. You know, we haven't yet received any official response, but we've received enough response to know that these are precisely the sorts of issues that are under discussion at HAIMA, they're under discussion at the state and the Senate Select Committees on COVID-19, and presumably they're under, they're under discussion with the lieutenant governor and his circle and with the governor's staff as well. I think many of the experts kind of know what needs to be done. These findings echo what is being suggested by other public health organizations and researchers around the world. What we haven't seen yet is the urgency, the action, and the resources. I'm worried right now that we've got a lot of agencies kind of spending a lot of their energy developing contingency plans for budget cuts instead of devoting all of their attention to responding as best we can to the emergency. But I hope we can, in some small way, influence that conversation and help urge all of our political leaders to really do what needs to be done and to do it today. Dr. Perkinson, you know, we're in the middle of this crisis now, but one would hope that we will not be in the middle of this crisis forever. And I guess I'm wondering if you and your colleagues had a chance to think about, will we ever not be dealing with this crisis? Will there be a normal again, or are we going to be looking at some kind of new normal for the rest of our lives? Well, you know, we are probably going to be contending with this virus for quite some time until a vaccine is widely disseminated or a very effective treatment comes online and is widely available. And beyond that, you know, public health officials believe that as a world, especially in the time of climate change, we are especially vulnerable to pandemics like this. So we will need to be ready for the next one and taking steps to prevent the next one, too. So maybe we won't go back to living exactly as we did before. My hope, though, is that if we build out our public health infrastructure, if we've got good kind of surveillance and containment institutions in place, that we can be much better positioned for the next crisis than we were for this one. I also hope that all of us recognize in this moment of crisis that all of us are in this together, that we're only as safe as the most vulnerable among us, you know, that we can't ignore problems of people without houses or in prison or in any kind of vulnerable situation without endangering all of us. So I hope we also realize that in a wealthy country, we have to come together and protect everyone so that we can protect ourselves and our families. Dr. Perkinson, before we say aloha, what have I not asked you? What would you like to add that would be important? We bought some time in Hawaii. That's thanks to the efforts of all of us. Hawaii, more so than some other places in the U.S., is a set of island communities that has the capacity to come together. We have an ethic of helping the less fortunate among us. So we have some real advantages. 
we've got hotel infrastructure, we've got resources, we've got a kind of a family-oriented population, and we've got an island environment. If we really come together under the leadership of state government and mount a full, robust response, we could actually become a model, at least in the United States, for responsible, effective response to this pandemic. And so I really hope that Hawaii can lead the way. Well, there's a lot of things about us that really make us unique. And the first one you mentioned at the very beginning of this discussion is we are an island state, and that puts us way ahead of an awful lot of other places. It does indeed. So we just need to press our advantages and make sure that we're protecting our most vulnerable residents, the elderly, those living in congregate long-term care facilities, inmates, and we are not there yet to ensure their safety, but I think we can get there, but we need to get there very soon because this is not a virus that lets you wait and see. Dr. Robert Perkinson, thank you so much. This has been super enlightening, super helpful, and I hope it really does help guide some of our officials in what the next steps really do need to be. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Be healthy and good wishes to you and yours on the Big Island. (laughs) Thank you very much. Aloha. Aloha. And thank you to our audience for being with me for this conversation with Dr. Robert Perkinson. Dr. Perkinson is the lead author on the report issued by the Public Policy Center of the University of Hawaii on the urgent steps Hawaii can take to contain the COVID-19 pandemic. You might find the report, which is super easy to read, at publicpolicycenter.hawaii.edu. This is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. You may find all the Island Conversation podcasts wherever you get podcasts. Just look for Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Until next time, please, let's all live and drive with aloha. Ahui ho. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.